In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about how to handle VC prospecting emails, building features versus building integrations, and more listener questions. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 419. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. It's a word this week, sir. Well, I'm in the uh, midst of polishing up a bunch of uh, screenshots for Bluetick to distribute with uh, product listings that I'm posting on various uh, websites at the moment. And I started doing it and then I realized like, huh, the screenshots that I could take that, you know, would take me like two seconds to do just from various places inside the app don't really tell a story about the app itself or any of the screens themselves because like you kind of have to have used the product in order to understand certain pieces of it. So I kind of backed off a little bit and said, okay, well, how can I tell a story with these screenshots and I've like most of the screenshots are actually like smaller versions of the screen itself and then like descriptive text around it and arrows and it kind of tells more of a marketing story around what the product will do for you as opposed to like just strict screenshots that you see on a lot of those uh, websites. Yeah, I, I agree. It, I think that, like taking screenshots and making them palatable is such an art and just trying to take a screenshot of like an entire screenshot of a whole screen in your app almost never works. There's just too much information. There's no context. You don't know what's going on. It's a very developer thing to do, right? Because we've seen screenshots in, in specs before or mock-ups in specs. And when I've seen screenshots that are really wind up being really helpful, it tends to be this really highly cropped thing that's just one corner of the screen. It's high, you know, high resolution. And like you said, it has some type of helper text or it takes a lot of time, I guess is what I've realized, like to make good screenshots, much like making a good explainer video seems like you crank one out in a few hours, tends to tends to take a lot of time to to do something like that. Yeah, those things take a couple of days. I actually allocated a, a day earlier this week to basically create a new explainer video and that was just not enough time. I, I've done them before, like I knew that it took more time, but I've, I guess I was just overly optimistic about how long it would take. Yep. No, I I kind of always am on those things. You know, I have this this blog post called How I Created Four Startup Explainer Videos for $11. And that's at robwalling.com in my essays section. And I run through how I created some pretty lo-fi explainer videos for Drip and why I did that. You know, it's definitely a bootstrapper, <laughs> a bootstrapper's approach because it was time consuming. I think I spent a full day from the time I wrote the copy until I recorded. I recorded four different ones, but the nice part is I could repurpose a bunch of the copy and, and the parts, you know, the, the, basically the animations I could repurpose them. So not something I'd recommend if you have the budget to just hire someone professional, but definitely something that a scrappy uh, bootstrap startup should probably probably think about. How about you? What's going on this week? You know, I'm, I'm having a tough week this week, man. Sherry's out of town. She's with her family. Her dad is is pretty ill and... She, you know, it's been a, a long time coming and it's been more than a year of, of stuff kind of, kind of degrading there. And so she's out of town and I'm trying to figure out, uh, I tend to do really well with just me and three kids and I can do it for about four days and then things just like drop off a cliff. And like on the fifth day I wake up tired and then I think the kids are tired of me and kind of tired of each other and I get 
I kind of start running out of patience and it's just this, this vicious cycle I'll say. And so I'm at the end of the week, it's Friday right now when we're recording, we're actually doing an emergency recording session because we're supposed to record next week, but I'm going to be out of town. And I think that's the other thing is like, I, I actually don't enjoy being on the road very much and I'm pretty much on the road for almost two, almost the next two weeks. So it is what it is. These are just times it's stuff that I, that I have to do. And I think it's stuff that will certainly help with tiny seed, I mean, a lot of it is, is work stuff and, and being face to face with some folks where it's important. But I think for now, I'm just kind of looking forward to getting back here for Thanksgiving and getting past this, this week. It's one of the, probably been one of the, I say worst weeks of, yeah, you know, maybe the last quarter. It's not like some catastrophic lifelong trough, but it's last several months. This is, this has been a tough one. Yeah. I've, realized earlier this week that the my kids have days off from school this week next week and the following week and i'm just like do you kids ever go to school <laughs> oh jeez yeah it's like who's going to who's going to watch these kids while they do that oh me i'm just going to work less you know already i mean you know unbeknownst to to the listeners you and i've been on the mic for almost 30 minutes and i've been interrupted twice by my kids one kid is homesick and another kid I homeschool part-time, but since Sherry's not here, I'm homeschooling him full-time and on and on and on. So it's just, it's just enough interruption that you can't actually get anything done. So I feel your pain with the kids home. It's a good thing you don't write code. It's a good, really good thing. Maybe there's a reason I don't write code anymore. Could be, could be. Maybe that's the trick. I don't know. Yeah. I, I forget who it was. Somebody had commented on, I think it was Alex uh, Yumashev. It said, he's like, oh, I I was able to only spend like 1% of my time on my phone this week. And uh, somebody asked him how he did it. He's like, well, I had a third kid. So, you know, there you <laughs> like go. that seems extreme. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to do it. So today we're answering some listener questions. Our first one is about how to handle VC prospecting emails. And it's from a longtime listener. He says, hey guys, I got the email below and I was briefly excited until I clicked on the link and it opened up a form where I'm asked about my company's earnings. The gist of the email is it's from a what looks like a venture capital firm, and it says, I'd like to speak to you about a financial opportunity regarding your SaaS business. As an acquisition advisor, I'm seeking to acquire a business in the, the space he's in. So I don't know that's much VC is more, it, it's almost like private equity, right? Like we may want to want to acquire you. So back to, to the original email. He says, so based on his email and the form uh, that was presented, it seems like he's not really interested in my company. He's just casting a broad net, seeing what's out there. I think it would be interesting for you guys to discuss, A, what to do if you get half-assed acquisition-related emails like this, and B, what to do with all those VC emails, the venture capital emails people seem to get looking to connect when you have no interest in venture capital. Keep up the good work on the show. So what do you think? There, there's two separate things here, right? It's because I think anyone who's built any type of business, got any traction, winds up on any list anywhere, eventually gets these emails, right? And I remember in the, in the, you know, in the latter days, right before the acquisition of Drip, I was getting probably three or four of the VC emails a month. And I was getting, I'd say maybe one a month of acquisition related. Maybe it was one every six weeks, but it was, there was definitely a pretty steady flow of them. So what do you think about these? Uh, I guess if we separate these two, because as you said, like they are two entirely different 
questions. Like the part about VCs just looking to connect, like on LinkedIn or sending emails. Like I get a bunch of these emails, like, "Hey, can we hop on a call and talk about your business?" And I'm just like, "No, like I don't have time to talk to you." And even if I did, like this isn't a good fit. <laughs> so I tend, to, I mean, I'm just blunt with them, and it's like, spend your time someplace else because like it's just not going to happen. A lot of times, I will just let the email go and I'll just ignore it. And then if they send me a couple of follow-ups, I think if I get to like two follow-ups, I have a, a cold emails folder that I just dump these into. And then if it gets to at least two and it looks like they're still going to continue emailing me, then I'll just respond and say like, look, this is not a good fit. It's not going to work. I'm just not interested. So take me off your email list. For the other ones, like if it's, you know, like a the situation that he described where it's a acquisition related email and they're asking questions about finances and stuff. My advice in that situation is really just like ask what their range of interest is, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go in and like fill out a form that gives like all the information about your business because they may be looking to use that to like justify a purchase price or to lowball somebody else's business or something along those lines. And you just don't know what that data is going to be used for. So, and there's no trust. So, like, why would you give over that information? So, but if they're actively looking for those types of businesses, then they know how much they're willing to spend. They know what their budget is and they know that below a certain threshold, they're not going to be interested. And they know that above a certain threshold, it's probably not going to work because they're not looking for a business that's that large because they're just not going to be able to pay for it. So like ask them what their range is. And if you fall within that range, then you might want to have a conversation with them. But otherwise, like I don't see any real obligation to start forking over information that is very specific to your business without like actually going down the path of formal offers and all that other stuff. But if you're not interested at all, you can say, hey, look, it's not a good time and maybe let's keep in touch. But I, I don't know as I'd entertain them. Just don't spend a, a lot of time on them is really what the bottom line is. I think that's great advice. Yeah, I think especially the venture capital emails, that it are it is just a junior I don't even know if they call it a junior partner, but just a junior person that is prospecting. It's cold outreach, right? An intern. That's that's what you mean, intern. <laughs> An intern, exactly. That's really what it is. They might be called a junior partner, but that's essentially what it is. And it's like, go find some deals. So with, with the venture capital stuff, I pretty much, like you, I just put that all into a folder somewhere in case in the future ever I, I decided by some crazy thing that I was going to raise venture capital, which was never on my radar. But at least then you have all the, you know, the names you could reach back out to. The acquisition stuff, I, I agree with you that I used to respond directly, like you said, and just be like, what are you looking at? What ranges are you looking at? I mean, basically what you've said, I would never fill out a form like that. And if that's their requirement, then delete. It's done. I, I feel like, yeah, you don't have to feel like they've backed you in a corner or something because they've sent you this email. You don't have any obligation to, to do any of this. I also, when those came into my inbox... I would tend to put them in my this week folder. So I talked this week on Zen Founder. I guess it's last week when this goes live, but the Zen Founder podcast, I did a solo episode where I talked about productivity hacks. And one of my productivity things in Gmail is that I have this label and it's underscore this week. And the reason it's underscore is so it goes to the top of the list. But anything that is not time urgent for me or is someone else putting something on my to-do list that does not need to urgently get done, I throw into this this week folder. And then once a week, I have a 30-minute time box that pops up and says, go through this week folder. And then I would go through all these and like respond. And I would try not to let it get into some big back and forth because that's how people suck time from you. And they don't do it necessarily intentionally, but they do it because it 
is in their best interest and not necessarily in yours. And that's the biggest thing I would think about is like, you don't have to respond to every email. And even if you do, don't, like you just said, Mike, don't spend a ton of time on this. That's the key. So thanks for the question. Our next question, it's another anonymous question. And he says, hey, Rob, congratulations on selling Drip. I've been following you and startups for the rest of us for a few years and consider you some kind of role model. Thanks so much for all the useful tips and inspiration. I have a question. I've built a SaaS. It works well in the German market. Now that we've entered the English-speaking market, it's become clear that a scheduling feature, like scheduling for appointments, is a deal breaker for most of our trial users. We don't have it built yet, so I'm thinking now if we should build the feature from scratch, which would be a lot of work and distraction, and it would be essentially expensive for us, or should we build an integration with some of the existing big players, like, say, Calendly or Acuity, or I'll say you can book me. What is your opinion or experience with this? Thanks a lot for your time. What do you think? So this is something I've actually looked at for BlueTick, and the path that I'm going down is to integrate with other ones who do exactly that. And you could invest all the time and effort of building your own version of it from scratch, but that is a value add to your products, not necessarily a core feature. For those other products, it's their core feature. So you may be able to attract certain types of users who aren't already using those, but at the same time, there are huge numbers of people who already have those products in place, and they work really well and they've got a lot of like uh, support infrastructure and customer validation and users and like all the stuff that goes with supporting an entire product that does just that. And for you to replicate that inside of your own app as like a small piece of it is probably not the wisest move in the world. So I would lean towards going with an integration of some kind. And if down the road, it makes sense to build your own version of it so that your incoming customers don't also have to have a subscription to those, then maybe that makes sense at that point. But I wouldn't start there. I wouldn't try to rebuild an entire application that other companies do, and that's all they do. Yep. I would agree with that advice. This is what we've seen with the all-in-one tools, much like the Infusionsofts or even the HubSpots, where they have built all this functionality into one. And you know, I guess I'll speak to Infusionsoft itself. If, if you've used it and you've tried to use their shopping cart, their affiliate management, their landing pages, their CRM, they're not very good. The core email stuff is decent, right? And, and they were the innovator in the visual builder, but it's a pretty rough product outside of that. And this is what I, I've never used those things. I've heard it from dozens and dozens of Infusionsoft customers who said, yes, I tried their shopping cart and it's not configurable and it's kind of a, a kludge. And so that's what you have to think about is, are you going to build something that is a worst in class, that is literally just a checkbox so that people say, oh, they have the scheduling feature. The moment you build it, people are going to say, oh, well, Calendly does this and I can check this one box and I can you know, put this buffer around my times or I can do it only every other day or I can do weekly this and that. And, I, and it suddenly it's like you are almost on the hook to build this best in class product. So I think that if you want to do that, you can make a very deliberate decision to do that over the long term and think three years down the line, do you want to still be maintaining that and adding to it and expanding it? Because it's not a one-time build, right? Not only are you going to have to get it to feature parity with your competitors, but then as they get better, you're going to have to then implement those features. So it really will be like having two products. Now, 
if you had funding or you were going after a huge market or growing very fast, then maybe that is the right choice. Maybe it is the right choice to not send people off to sign up for Calendly or, or Acuity or You Can Book Me because you would want to maintain those dollars, right? You'd want to retain them. And having someone go and pay for those other subscriptions would actually be a, a loss of value to you and you need to capture as much value as you can. But when you're a bootstrapper and you're a small team and you're growing based on revenue, I would say by default, integrate first and do a pretty quick integration, then do a kind of a V2 integration, which is, you know, the next level up and is even better. Then if everything catches on, you're six months down the line and, and you really have realized this is a core feature, then maybe you evaluate building it. That's a very common path to what you see even bigger startups do is first they go integrate and then they circle back and they build out the core features in the app that are the most popular. You know, they build the most, the most popular integrations become core features in the app, but then you at least have more data and you kind of have a longer time frame to think about it. You're not making this rash decision of like, oh, everyone's requesting it over the course of this month. Let's commit ourselves to this thing, which lasts years. You know, you're going to impact your product roadmap for literally years if you do that. So I'm on the same page as you. I would integrate first and then I would think about what is what does it look like to improve that integration? And then what does it look like to eventually, if we need to, build that out, but to do it very deliberately and to give yourself more time for it to sink in as to the ramifications of what that means. So thanks for the question. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is about going in circles, no traction, no investors. It's from Gabriel Popa. And he says, hey, Mike and Rob, thanks for the great show. I've been listening for a couple months now. I'm catching up on older shows as well. I'd appreciate some advice or a starting point on this. I'm the single developer of a note-taking app. I've reached the point where the app needs a team and some funding to move forward. I would like to apply for seed investment, but given the fact that investors like to see, among other things, traction, some customer base, et cetera, I know that the chances are slim for me to get investment. I did my homework and I am able to articulate the key differentiators properly. Right now, I cannot get any traction with the current state of the app. It's not consumer ready. So I'm stuck in this loop. I'm reluctant to apply for seed investment as a single developer, as I know this does not look good to investors. All I have is a website, screenshots, a blog, a demo, and a deck. I know that's not enough, but I also know that this has some potential. How do you break out of this loop? So Mike, I'll totally let you handle this first. He has a lot of I know statements in here that I question if if they're factual. I was going to call those out. I was going to call yeah. those out. It's like, how do you know that it's not enough? Like, it seems to me like the core problem here is that like you need money in order to be able to take the products to the next level. And there are some customers there. There's a, a customer base. You're looks like you're getting some traction with it. Like, how do you know that you're you're not going to get the money unless you ask for it? Yeah, he doesn't have. But he said he doesn't have a customer base. Oh, he doesn't. Oh, did I? No, miss that? it's just a. Yep, yep. He said the current state of the app is not consumer ready, that all he has is a marketing website, screenshots, a blog, a demo, and a deck. So he doesn't yet have, uh, I'm assuming zero paying customers at this point. Does that mean he doesn't have a product either? He says, I can't get any traction with the current state of the app. So that tells me there's code written. I don't, maybe the UI is bad. Maybe it's just not usable yet. He says it's not consumer ready. I don't know what that means. I wonder if this is a mobile app or like a, a web app. Yeah, it says note. It says note taking, which tells me it might be both. You know, right? Right. Note taking app. You think of like Evernote or something. It's like you kind of have to be mobile and web. You know. 
Right. Yeah. And that's uh, honestly, I, I would wonder more about whether it's the space as opposed to the app itself, because there are a lot of note taking apps. I mean, and there's a lot of them that are free. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the thing is this, there's so much competition. And I feel like it's like project management software or bug trackers, like developers, for whatever reason, love to build bug trackers. <laughs> to-do lists. Yes. <laughs> to-do lists, bug trackers. Those are the things that like every developer decides, oh, I'm going to like all these other ones suck and I'm going to create my own and it's going to be better than all of them. And the reality is that like everyone has different tastes and that's why there are so many of them. And it's hard to build like mass market appeal with any of them because everyone just has these different tastes associated with it. And it's so easy to get into the space because they're like the bar is really low to like build most of those apps. And I'm not saying that's not complicated and there's not a lot to it. It's just that it's fairly straightforward in terms of the technical challenges that you have to overcome. So everyone says, well, I can, I can build one that's better than that. And it will do exactly what I want. The problem is everybody who uses those apps has slightly different needs. And therefore that's why the market is so incredibly fragmented. So like I'm with you, like I, I think that there's a lot of I knows in here that are probably not justified, but at the same time, like, I don't know how much traction you're going to get with an app like this or how you would go about pitching this to investors to begin with without getting that traction. You even look at Evernote. Like I wouldn't, like I've used Evernote before. I still have my account, but I barely use the product anymore. And why is that? It's just like, I got away from it and I found other things that I liked better. So there's huge churn problems as well in those types of apps. And I don't know how you overcome those types of things. Yeah, it's such a, it's definitely an investment play. And I think that's the struggle is trying to build an app and have crowded space like this, even with differentiators you have to validate that that differentiation matters to anyone before anyone is likely to give you investment. Honestly, in your shoes, this is what accelerators are made for, right? They're, it's made for people who have ideas and either no traction or maybe a little bit of traction. That's why YC started. You can come with an idea. I know a lot of people come in you know, beyond that, but you have to, it's like, you got to put your hustle pants on in all, in all honesty, like you either need to apply to an accelerator. If this idea is, is that big, you need to have a network of people who are willing to invest in you because of your past history. I'm guessing that that's not the case or you would have already done that. You need to teach yourself to code, or if you're already a developer nights and weekends, I mean, we, we've all done this years and years of nights and weekends. I did to get stuff off the ground. If you're not a developer, then work a side hustle, save enough money, hire a developer, have them build it. I mean, th there are ways to get this done. They're hard. It's hard work. That's what startups are, right? There, there is no easy answer. So you break out of this loop by just saying that you're not going to give up until, until you have something to show people. If you truly, truly believe that this is something that, that's going to be a differentiator. That's kind of my, my first two thoughts. One is I think accelerators are ideal for this. Number two, I think you're going to have to hustle way harder than you're letting on in your email. I'm not saying you're not hustling, but you're, you're certainly not presenting that in the email that, that you've just gone to the mattresses and are pulling out all the stops because that's what it's going to take to, to launch an app like this. And then my third thought is, have you validated this with anyone? Like, does anyone else care about the differentiate, the note-taking differentiators you're talking about? So I would be 
going down, literally going to local coffee shops and just ask if it's a B2C app, I would just start asking people. I would approach people. I would, I would be on forums. I would go on, start on Indie Hackers, be on Hacker News. But I would also, if this is a note-taking app for veterinarians, I would be on the veterinarian forums. I would, I would buy that ticket to the, the conference where, you know, you need to approach people that uh, might use this app. I mean, it, it's just like have the conversations and try to invalidate your hypothesis. Your hypothesis is that, is that these key differentiators are going to so differentiate your note-taking app that it's going to have all this traction and it's going to grow big and grow fast. And I think you need to validate that assumption. The one thing that you mentioned in there that I think is actually something for him to key in on is that, you know, you'd mentioned a note-taking app for veterinarians. And the way this is presented to us is that it's a generic note-taking app. But I think if you niche down to a particular type of industry or market vertical or even like a position in a company, like that would probably be a great place to go. Because I have seen apps that are specifically designed for like the person who like changes your tires at the the car shop. They have apps that are specifically set up so that they can take notes on, you know, oh, you came last came in with your car and this is what things would look like and this is what we should look for or this is what we should reach out to you about in the future because we see that there's like degradation on, I don't know, the muffler or something like that and it looks fine now, but what about in six months? What about in a year? Like maybe we should send you a coupon or something like that. And it's, those are the types of things that you're going to want to key in on to find who the audience is that's actually going to pay for it. And then you have your value propositions and everything else. Yeah. And this is a hard place to be in, you know, I mean, this is what every early stage entrepreneur, this is where almost all of us find ourselves in, unless you have a Cinderella story, you know, you're, you're Mark Zuckerberg and you're at Harvard and you're hacking away and suddenly your app is growing 9 million percent a month or whatever. That almost never happens. Almost never. It's always this struggle. It's the untold struggle. And I think that does us all a disservice because when you get to the point where, where Gabriel is at, you don't realize all the hustle you have to put into it to get any type of escape velocity, you know, and, and the untold hours and nights and weekends and, and the sacrifice that it's going to take and the fact that it may not work out, that you may spend the next six months or a year of nights and weekends and then realize, oh, this is no different than, than Evernote and I, I can't get any traction or this is different, but nobody cares. Or it was different, but Evernote implemented my feature. And now I have to start over from scratch. And, and this is the path that you're going to travel as a founder, you know? So I, I really think you want to ask yourself, is this what I'm signing up for? You know, and is this something that I want to, that I want to do because it, it is a lifelong journey, I believe. And, you know, from the time I, I first launched something in 1999 until I, I was even able to quit my job and support myself full time. It was, uh, it was 10 years, I think. And there were some tough times there. Right? And I think all of us, each of us, ha you know, each successful entrepreneur has that story to tell. Hopefully it's not 10 years for you. Hopefully it's gotten shorter now that there's better information out there. But I want you to think in terms of, of years, not months, when you're thinking about trying to build a successful business. So that was a good question. Thanks for sending it in. Our last question of the day is all about buying a software business. It's from Alex Bush, and he says, Hey, Robin Mike, thanks for making such a great podcast. Very educational. I am entrepreneurial myself, but so far I'm in the consulting world trying to save up as much FU money as I can to go full-time with my own business. I'm focusing on selling services and educational materials for iOS developers. I listened to a few of your episodes lately, 
about taking on investment, and it got me thinking about acquiring a business rather than building one from scratch. So a question for you, how would you go about this? Specifically, how do I find an online or software business for sale? How do I approach them? How do I find all the info? How do I get all the data, like their user base, their accounting books, the, what they've done for marketing, et cetera, that I need about them to make an educated decision? What are the price ranges I'm looking at for a profitable business? So far, I have found Flippa, flippa.com, and it is very interesting, but some of the prices and bids there seem to be too good to be true. How would I vet them? Is it even a good place to look? What do you think, Mike? So I'm going to give a, a couple of links in addition to Flippa for you. One of them is allsideprojects.com, and you'll find things there that have various price ranges. And you, there's different tags and stuff that you can sort. And it does look like you can buy various websites and apps and products over there. But there's also a new one that I saw. It was on Product Hunt. It's called 1kprojects.com. And it's uh, pitched as neglected side projects for less than $1,000. So you can go there and take a look and see what they have there. And they'll tell you, you know, what the MRR is, what the price is, what the product does, and, you know, kind of who is aimed at. You can get a good sense of at least whether or not it's worth your time looking at. But that's the place that I would probably start over Flippa. It's relatively new. I'm trying to remember, I saw it, it was within a month ago. So it's it's relatively new. I can't vouch for the quality of anything that you find there, but it seems like they're getting a fair amount of traction and the, the site looks pretty clean and polished. So I would imagine that like they're heading in the right direction because there's a lot of people out there with projects that they started working on and they just didn't go anywhere and or they got them to a certain point, they just can't make it work. So that's the place I would start. That's a cool idea. I, w I hope this sticks around. I've seen a lot of these things crop up over the years and then they they just go away because they don't make enough money. But I like this idea because of how many side projects people start and shut down and then how many people, it's like wasted value. You know how economists look at like, I think it's like Christmas as this huge waste of economic value because you buy things for people that they don't want and then they either have to sell them for less or they return them and, and they get store credit instead of getting value. And like, that's what I see as people building side projects, shutting them down. And then all these other people coming in and saying, I really wish that I could take over a side project. So I hope that this kind of thing sticks around. So it, it's kind of cool. It, and it's neat that they're at a low price point. I mean, I, I guess if they get traction, they'll expand up because certainly sometimes there are, you know, things that I suppose could be worth more than a thousand dollars, but love that idea. As you said, allsideprojects.com and 1kprojects.com. We will include links to those in the show notes. The other thing I think you could look at, and you know, even five, six years ago, I wouldn't have had this suggestion, but there are a handful of basically website or, or app brokers. They do both. They do e-commerce websites and information products and software and, and all that stuff that there's there's a handful of them that are pretty dang good and they're specializing in this kind of stuff. So FE International is one and quietlightbrokerage.com is another and empireflippers.com. Those are the three that I tend to recommend to people. You get on their lists and they get new new listings each week and you kind of got to go through and look at them. Now, those are going to be, I would say, a definitely higher quality and also higher cost than something like Flippa. I have bought many, many websites, web apps on Flippa. Some of them were complete junk and scams. I had to spend a bunch of time vetting them. Even then, sometimes it didn't work out, but the cost was so low that in the end, it was a, a very much a net positive for me, but it was a lot of time that I spent vetting. It wasn't just 
you know, walk down the street and find this amazing deal on this amazing piece of real estate. That never happens, right? If, if you're a real estate investor, you spend a ton of time learning the market, learning how to negotiate, learning how to vet things, learning how to, how to do the work and what it's going to cost. Same thing here. If you're going to buy an app, you need to educate yourself. So don't think that you're just going to walk up and on the first day, find a great deal that you don't have to vet and everything's laid out for you. You know, there's, and especially the cheaper you get, the more risk that there's going to be. You just have to be willing to, to take that risk. So I have always been a proponent of buying, or I say always, since, since my first acquisition worked out in 2005 and I realized, oh my gosh, this is like the shortcut, you know? And so forget all this building stuff. I mean, as, as fun as the building is, it's also super stressful, takes too long and you never know if it's going to work. And it takes you a year or two to get to product market fit. Whereas if you can acquire something that's already halfway there or already has product market fit, like, honestly, I think, I think you are definitely ahead of the game by thinking in those terms. Well, I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestless.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestless.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.